2: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the
3: podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in.
2: All right, thank you, Deirdre. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the judge, Scott Wapner. Stock taking a bit of a breather as investors look for more guidance from the Fed about rate hikes ahead. We'll get more clues in a couple hours from now. Big question today, can the recent rally keep going? We'll debate that and the next move for your money. Our investment committee today, Joe Terranova, Degas Wright, and right here with me on set, Jenny Harrington and Jim Labenthal. Let's begin with the check on the markets. Right now, we're just off the session lows as we wait for the latest Fed Minutes to be released in just about two hours. It's a bit of a down day, as you can see, a lot of red across that board. The S&P having its biggest drop in about three weeks. The Dow down about 280 points. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down more than a percent and a half right now. Yields also moving higher. The 10-year yield hitting its highest level since August the 12th. Right now at 2.911. you got to remember, just on August the 1st, we had a low. It was a low. It was an intraday low of 2.51. So a big change right there. So we're going to begin with you, Jenny, if you don't mind. What do you think about everything we're seeing? Is this a signal potentially that the rally might be over, or is there just more room to come? And this is a breather, as we said at the top of the show.
4: I suspect the rally's probably taking a pause. So here's where I am. I started the year very unenthusiastic. That was when I wrote to my clients in January. When I wrote to my clients in July for my quarterly letter then, I was starting to feel enthusiastic. And as you guys may remember, we added five positions to the portfolio during the second quarter. So there was a lot that we did in the second quarter, and I was feeling more enthusiastic fast forward 7 weeks and change into this new quarter and here's where we are the S&P is trading at 18 times earnings if we think of 18 times sorry 240 2023 earnings you take 18 times 2023 expectations of $240 a share for the S&P 500, and you've got 4,300 on the S&P. We're kind of there. I don't know how much multiple expansion there can be from here, so I'm not feeling very enthusiastic. I'm not feeling unenthusiastic. I'm feeling meh, and that's not exciting, but I think that's probably realistic. So look, maybe we crawl back a little, maybe we climb up a little, maybe we meander, but I don't think that this is going to be a market of, of fireworks on either end. I think we're just kind of muddling through and getting through the rest of this year.
2: You know, man may be the word of the day, Jim. I'm going to come over to you. Something our data team dug up. I know you're Farmer Jim. Uh, Hmm. The SPY's volume's 14% lower than his 30-day. The QQQ, 24% lower than his 30-day. Maybe it's a lot of meh out there. I mean, can we take what we're seeing today that seriously with volumes that much lower? You went right where I wanted to go,
5: Frank. Thank you very much. Um, because <laughs> you're clairvoyant. It's seasonality, right? We're in the second half of August. Volumes are usually very light in the second half of August. People are on vacations. Yes, there's still some things to look forward to. We've got the Fed minutes today. I'm not that excited about it. We've got Jackson Hole next week. I, I don't think we're going to get all that much news from it. But the, the key point here is people are on vacation. What happens, though, is they come back in. September. September And traditionally, September is a tricky month. People come back from vacation and they focus on what's going on. Now, things are balanced, in my opinion, between the positives and the negatives. But we have to respect the fact that the S&P 500 is up 17 percent from the lows. So there is reason for people to come back from vacation in September and say, hey, wait a second, we still got inflation with an eight handle. Hey, wait a second. We've had the Fed raise 225 basis points, probably another hundred to go. We've got a war in Europe. All of these things, and it's likely to make for what seasonally, traditionally, is a choppy month, namely September. Right now, today... This is a pause in a rally that is likely to be that dog days of summer, end of summer rally. I will probably lighten up in this. I don't want anybody hearing what I'm saying to say, oh my God, is getting bearish. I am not. I feel very positive into the end of the year and beyond. However, with what I've said, it would be wise to have just a little bit of dry powder going into September. That's why, Frank, you may remember last week I sold Nvidia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may sell a little something again in the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to go crazy here. If I
2: raised 10% cash. That'll give me some money to play with in September, which, again, should be volatile. Jim, by the way, not just people on vacation. You with the casual Wednesday. I like this look. No tie. Just here to to talk. Frank, I got a lot on my mind. I'm not going to lie to you. I forgot the tie today. I just (laughs) flat out forgot I got a lot on my mind, my man. with the casual Wednesday. Degas, I'm going to come over to you. Are are you taking what we're seeing here today seriously? I mean, as we just talked about, lower volume, Jenny's man. I think a lot of people out there are kind of man.
0: You know, Frank, I agree with you because ultimately what I'm seeing is that this looks to be a bear market rally. And the reason I say that is we may have hit peak inflation, but the Fed has not uh, put signaled that they're going to stop the rate hike cycle because they want to focus and get to a target of 2 percent inflation. And we're not there yet. They also want to get a more balanced labor market. And we're not there yet. So they're going to continue to raise interest rates, and that could have a negative impact on stocks. So that's why I'm I'm still seeing that we could pull back from these levels.
2: Joe, I want to come over to you. I'm going to actually hit you with something, if you don't mind. Uh, Savita from B of A, B of a Savita Supermanium, out with a note today saying that uh, only 30% of bull market signposts have happened compared to 80% from previous bottoms. She's skeptical about this rally. So, There's one signpost that she has that has a perfect track record. She calls it the rule of 20, the sum of CPI year over year plus the trailing PE of the S&P 500 when it's lower than 20 when the market has bottomed. All right, historical bull markets always begin with PE plus CPI that's less than 20. I want to make sure I'm quoting this one right. Right now, we're at about 28 when you put those two metrics together. this, according to Savita, this is a foolproof measure right here. What do you think about that when you see these these quote-unquote what she calls signposts at 28 when normally it has to be under 20 for the,
3: the signal to be that we're
2: in a bull market?
3: I think it's – listen, I respect Savita tremendously. I think it's somewhat complicated, though, and I think it's also important to understand uh, the inclusion of inflation in that problem that we're presenting and that the Federal Reserve is efforting against kind of combating inflation. So it's, it's a very strong fundamental perspective on the overall environment, and it's it's one that's, that's fair. I don't disagree with it. But what I do believe is that collectively everything that has gone on, Frank, since the beginning of this quarter is technically driven in its nature. And it's a reaction to Treasury yields on June 14th finding their peak falling back from there, getting some good fundamental news from earnings, getting some better than expected views as it related to inflation. And it's, it's, it's somewhat remarkable how perfectly this technical road we've been able to drive down. We went right up to the 200-day moving average yesterday. On Monday, I was on the show, Jonathan Krinsky came on. Mm-hmm. He said to everyone, S&P... 500, challenges a 200-day moving average for the first time and generally gets rejected if the slope of that 200-day moving average is down. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. So this this is kind of working from a technical perspective perfectly, and it's been the technicals that have driven us to where we are today. And oh, by the way, guess what? Treasury yields, which were the leading indicator for an improving environment for risk assets. Well, you got a 10 year that's pushing above 290 today. Treasury yields moving higher. We woke up and we were greeted with the news with hot inflation coming from the UK. Well, inflation's still a problem. We're still going to have to combat it. So I I respect what Savita is talking about. It's a very fundamental perspective. But I think right now is technically Everything's technically driven, and that's why we've got this pause that Jenny's talking about today based on the failure up at the 200-day moving average. Well, let's call it a rejection, not a failure. Hey, Joe, it's Jimmy. I got a question for you, a general question here. All of these
5: rules in technical analysis, some of the things that you're talking about, some of the things that Savita talks about, obviously they're based on historical pattern, and in that regard, they're fact. But I've been wondering if mm-hmm. post-pandemic, we're in a brave new world. Now, Now, don't come at me with you know, telling me I'm wrong because you know, it's never different. I, I know the folly of that. But I do still wonder. There have been some, some rules, if you will, broken. For instance, uh, in the last three Fed rate hike cycles, the market went up. I mean, the, this market went down from the first rate hike. That's just an example. So it's a general question to you. Is it possible that at least some of these rules have been made not applicable by the weird after effect of the pandemic and global shutdown?
3: without question jimmy you you're correct to think that and and certainly the observation is is one that has validity. My response though when and thinking about technicals is you have to think about the growth of non-discretionary funds. They're all rules based. they're all telling investors that emotional behavior doesn't work well in investing so they're just what are they doing Jimmy they're reacting to Price, they're reacting to the movement of price, they're reacting to the slope of price. And overwhelmingly, we've seen what we call quant models grow within the industry. Now, you could dismiss that. You could say, well, you have to look at fundamentals. Okay, that's fair. Or you could take the other side of it and say, well, price drives everything. That's fair as well. But from my standpoint, because they're the overwhelming majority of participation in markets right now, you kind of have to pay attention and respect what they're doing. And I don't think that you could dismiss their activity within the market. And it's never been, it's never been more clairvoyant than what we've witnessed since the beginning of this quarter. Because I don't think, and Jim, I think you would agree, I don't think there's any fundamental change right now. Maybe a little bit better corporate earnings maybe a little bit of improvement with inflation, but we still have an adversarial Federal Reserve. We still have a dramatic amount of problems. Last point on that, and this is, this is how you can't disrespect these non-discretionary funds, these rules-based funds. The price of oil, the spot price of oil, is now spending its 11th day below its 200-day moving average. That's in, re- remarkable. And guess what? A lot of these non-discretionary funds, they're actually short. They're actually short crude oil futures, which to me seems to have no logic based on the fundamental environment. But that just supports the premise of what is dictating their action in the market. Good stuff, Joe. Thank you. A lot to unpack there.
2: I'm glad you guys are having this debate right now. Just by the way, we're off session lows, but still all three indices in the red right now. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit as Treasury yields climbs very slightly right now. We're looking at it right here. Um, Treasury yields right now at 2.913. Again, NASDAQ hardest hit, down a percent and a half. Um, While we're on this technical wave, if you will, I want to put out another note. And, Jenny, I'm going to toss this one over to you. UBS out with a note. Mark Haefeli and his team, I'm going to warn you, this is not a pep talk. I'm going to hit you with a couple of the bullet points from that note. The rally over the past month in particular has had a technical tailwind. There's scope for this tailwind to continue to continue supporting risk markets. We would caution investors against chasing the rally. We expect renewed market volatility ahead. I think this is some of the conversation we've all been having on-air and off-air. You're expecting some more volatility, but do you believe this technical tailwind can carry the markets higher even with some of that volatility in the near, potentially,
3: future?
4: I don't know. So I'm not a technician, right? And I really don't understand technical analysis. But I think it's interesting because frequently Joe, who does, and I, who am truly a fundamental analyst, we end up in the same spot. So I read that and I think, interesting, right? They're looking at it from a technical perspective. I'm looking at it from a fundamental, but we both come at it from the same spot, which is like, look, you know, from a fundamental perspective or from an emotional behavioral perspective, Mm -hmm. the market always overreacts. And so Jim's right, people might come back in September and they might actually get excited and say, hey, the market's up. I'm feeling better. I might put money to work. And maybe that carries it higher. Maybe it works in reverse. We don't know. But the way I look at it as a fundamental portfolio analyst is to say, okay, right? All these technical factors have added up to this. Now I'm going to take my human brain and see where the disconnects are. And so when Joe was talking about um, – about oil just a minute ago and showing us what energy, energy stocks and energy prices have done in the shorts on that. I look at that and I say that's nonsensical the same way a week and change ago when I was on. We were talking about the fact that energy stocks were down 10 and, you know, five and 10 percent off their highs. And I was saying it doesn't matter if oil is at 140 or 100, these stocks, these companies are still minting cash. So when they're trading as if oil's priced at 60 and oil's still trading at 80, you know, natural gas is really high and they're making a ton of money, then that makes sense. So it's interesting to just see the convergence of technical and fundamental come out with the same outcome, even though they're saying, even though they're looking at it from two really different angles. But yeah, do I think that it could carry a little higher? Sure. Do I think it could back off? Sure. And this is where I know it's a wishy-washy answer. I know everybody on TV wants black and white. They want, you know, they want home runs to be hit. I'm not a home run hitter. I'm a single and doubler, right? But like mostly, I think, I think this year stays kind of range-bound, and I think it's going to be hard where we need to work really hard and not make big, sweeping, sweeping things. We can't say, and we were talking about this a little earlier today, we can't say things like buy tech. You need to say, which tech names do you want to own? You can't say buy semis. You need to say, which semi companies do you want to own? Right. So this, this yeah. is the market that we're in, where I actually think fundamental analysis is going to win the day.
2: So, Degas, you're on deck right now. Are you swinging Frank, the fences right now, or are you like Jenny, just going for that single?
0: <laughs> well, you know, the way I look at it is I'm actually a quantitative manager. So I've, I blend the fundamental and the technical uh, in my process. So as Jenny and, and Joe were talking about this, I can relate to both aspects of the discussion. And what I'm finding at this point in the market, you want to stay true to your discipline. And we focus on reasonable valuation, positive or stable expectations, profitability, and a good corporate citizen. And so with this type of market, you know, what we can do, though, is that you can be tactical. You can do some tactical allocations to the market. You know, Jenny made the comment that we talk a lot about the tech, technology companies, but there's companies throughout every sector that can meet those requirements that I just got through talking about that blends the fundamental and the technical to see what companies are going to do the best in this particular market.
2: All right, well, we're less than two hours away from those Fed minutes. The S&P 500 up 7% since the last Fed meeting. The Nasdaq up about 9% since July 27th. Let's bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman for his take. Steve, we've got to ask you, what are you seeing coming up ahead with these Fed minutes? I know you're down in D.C. waiting for them right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, talk out there about there being some hawkish risk around these minutes. Uh, and it's probably worth to go back and review the bidding. Uh, Chair Powell, uh, the, the Fed had its statement in uh, the end of July, and Powell had his press conference. And a lot of people took away this idea that there's some sort of pivot out there. And a lot of Fed observers, myself included, didn't precisely hear that pivot. Um, and, and markets, of course, have rallied, uh, I don't know, was about 8 percent since that meeting, um, having having heard that pivot. And the trouble right now... Uh, is, is that since that meeting, a lot of Fed officials have come out and said, you know what, we didn't pivot. This idea of a rate cut being built in for next year, they've really leaned against that, Frank. And so I'm just wondering if these minutes serve as I don't know what you want to call it, like a redirect in a courtroom, uh, um, uh, uh, in, in a court hearing or a court trial where the Fed comes forward and says, you know, this is what we said. It's here in the minute. So I think there's some hawkish risk around it. The question is, will the market even hear it? Uh, uh, Degas is the only one that that seems to be talking from the same book that I am about the Fed. I think the Fed has has a ways to go yet, and so it's going to be a bit of push-me-pull-you. I think the inflation numbers this morning at at the U.K. got the the market's attention. I would just argue that what's happening in the U.K. is quite different from what's happening here.
2: Yeah, you know, speaking of, Steve, we've seen better-than-expected inflation numbers, CPI, PPI. Yeah. um, I covered transports. Even the cash freight said, hey, we may have reached the peak of shipping rates, which is great for a lot of air is the economy, especially retail. How does the Fed read these uh, these inflation numbers? I mean, better than expected. But you see a lot of stickiness, especially when it comes to areas like housing, energy and food.
1: So, Frank, here's what I would say. I, let's say you were camping with a park ranger and you got done with your campsite and you were going to put out the fire. Um, you might be OK with one bucket of water on that on that uh, uh, fire there. The park ranger is going to go and put three, four, five buckets of water on that, on that fire. I think that's the way the Fed feels about inflation right now. The market thinks it's going to go away with one bucket. Park ranger is going to go put a whole lot more buckets on there.
2: All right. Fed minutes coming up in about two hours. Steve, we got a couple questions here for you. Jim, you want to kick it off? Yeah. Hey, Steve, this is the yin to your yang, if you will. I
5: think you know that. Um, the question <laughs> is, is this. You know, a lot of times we a lot of times we talk about this Fed meeting is so important or these Fed minutes are so important. What if I told you I think these are probably the least important minutes simply because the Fed has said they're going to be data dependent. I mean, I, you know, maybe they could come out in the minutes and say, no, that's not what we really said. But if but if that's what the minutes say, then it's sort of like, OK, they're going to be data dependent. Let's
1: see what the data shows. Um. I think I'd ask myself, Jim, if you were at home as a viewer, would you believe the guy with the tie or the guy without the tie? <laughs> I think that's really the more important question to ask. Um, so I don't really have a high bar to get over here evidentially, with evidence here. I, I think you're right, Jim. I think it is It is a meeting to meeting. I think you gotta, you got to incorporate or listen to all the Fed speak that's out there. The minutes are, are, I think, a true accounting of what happened at the meeting, but I think the Fed also tailors them for messaging. Uh, and so we're going to pay attention to it. I don't think they're the most important minutes we've ever had before. We've got a lot of Fed speak coming up next week at Jackson Hole. So um, I would, um, i listen to them and I'd, I would just, I think the important thing here is is how serious the Fed is. I think it has this appointment with a 3% funds rate. Uh, and I think it maybe go to three and a half, and then uh, it, it's more a uh, contingent upon data. Joe, you have a tie on and a question, I believe? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I certainly do. and and I and I
3: share a lot of uh, common interest with Steve. We're both concerned about the way the Yankees are playing lately. And Steve, I agree with you, Up the with Fed that. has to remain diligent, yeah. in what they're doing with with raising interest rates. and I, and I suspect that, the financial market stability that's kind of been reestablished here at the beginning of this quarter, the improvement in pricing of risk assets, it gives them cover, keep going, you know, raise rates more. But I want to ask you about yeah. the balance sheet runoff, because everyone's yeah. talking about September 1st, like it's 2000 and Y2K again. I mean, <laughs> on September 2nd, is, is are we just going to see the apocalypse come for risk assets because we're increasing the size of
1: the balance sheet runoff? So that's a great question. And, and I'd say this, that would be true if you think the markets had no forward indicating uh uh, feature to them uh the fed has advertised since may 4th when it put out its statement that it would be doubling the size of its balance sheet runoff you have to believe that the folks who are running the balance sheets of the big banks know this is going to happen at the investment banks Um, i will say so far if you look at the 10 years since may 4th it's actually down i did a story yesterday that's because actually net issuance from the treasury is down uh, net new issuance, sorry, the, the amount of, of new issues going up, but going up at a slower pace, in part because the Treasury overfunded during the pandemic, uh, and you've had better tax receipts, in part driven by inflation, by the way. So the thing that people care about is not really the balance sheet. The guys in the fixed income market care about net new issues. How much do I have to digest of what the government's putting out, including what the Fed isn't rolling over and including new issues from the Treasury? That number's come down, according to Luke Crandall. The estimates are for the third and fourth quarter. So I, I don't think there's an apocalypse. I think there's a lot of excess uh, liquidity out there right right now that the Fed can uh, uh, remove from the system without too much of of an economic impact.
2: All right. Fed Minutes released at 2 p.m. Steve Leesman, we know you will have the very latest on Power Lunch. Appreciate you being here. And all of you out there, stay with halftime. We're following the money as the new data shows where investors stand on tech plus semis stand about 4 percent this week. Should you buy this latest drop? Halftime, back in two minutes. All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. New Fund Flows data shows money pouring back into tech. Our Sima Modi is tracking it. Hey, Seema.
7: Hey, Frank, that's right. The Fund Flows data from Bank of America shows investors are doubling down on tech, over $2 billion in the last week, strongest inflows in over a decade, followed by consumer discretionary. In fact, growth sectors in general seeing strong buying Tesla, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft have collectively added over $1.4 trillion in market cap from the low hit in June. Buying has been led by hedge funds. That's what the data shows. Institutional clients looking to buy the dip following a steep drop that we saw in the first half of the year. And just in the last two weeks, buybacks by corporate clients accelerating to the highest level since January, just as the Inflation Reduction Act gets passed. Julian Emanuel at Evercore ISI says the fund flow's data is definitely supportive of the rebound in tech. However, when you factor in the move in meme stocks and the surge in call options volumes, he says it's very reminiscent of the speculation we saw in September of 2020 when growth began a multi-month underperformance versus value stocks. Tech earnings, though, will be key. So far, an 87% beat rate across the sector. Cisco set to report tonight, Frank.
2: All right. Our Seema Modi. Thank you very much, Seema. Jenny, over to you. We were actually talking before the show. I hope I'm not saying too much, but you were saying all we do is talk about tech. Everybody's so focused on tech. Um, Obviously, some big inflows into tech, but it's also some inflows in some other areas as well.
4: Right. And so one of the things we were talking about is consumer discretionary, for example, is up 26 percent this quarter. industrials are up 15%, financials are up 14%. So I think it's important for us to remember that, the, you know, that it's not all tech, and this is something we've been talking about for the last year and change, really, is that the market leadership is broadening out. And I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves if we continue to focus solely on tech. It's time to round out the portfolios. It's time to look. It's time to look more broadly and think, you know, does... Does it B&G Foods, which, yes, they had a reasonably rotten quarter, but now it's trading with an 8% yield and a cheap valuation? Does that make sense? It's time to start thinking about and talking about just different kinds of companies than we've focused on.
2: Um, Degas, over to you. I mean, do you see the the best opportunities going forward in tech, or are you looking at other areas as well? Yeah, Frank, uh, to Jenny's point, I'm looking
0: at all areas uh, of the market. And so if we start looking at individual companies, a company like Viva Systems, that really has d- developed a way of software that allows medical researchers to communicate and share data. This company is doing quite well. It's about a $35 billion company. If you look at Vulcan Materials, a construction material company, it's going to benefit from infrastructure. So you can look at themes. And then lastly, if you look at information, you can look at S&P Global. They're a provider of not only the bond rating, but they're driving, um, a model right now is market intelligence. So once again, to Jenny's point, you want to look at all sectors to find those companies that will perform in this market.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one other area that we're definitely looking at is semis, one of the worst performers today and coming off their worst day in a week. Jim, over to you. You have a lot of ownership in chips. You're actually overweight on chips right now.
5: I first have to restrain myself. Diga said infrastructure. People know that's like catnip for me. All right, we I'm going to restrain myself.
2: When I saw the Vulcan, okay. charge? I saw your
7: eyes. <laughs> I saw your eyes. <laughs>
5: Thank you, Degas. Listen, here's what's going on with semis. Semis right now, they're a classic cyclical industry, so they are a referendum on a day-to-day basis as to whether we're going into a recession or not. That's from a fundamental point of view. Certainly there will be technical points of view as well. But what you have to consider here is that if, you know, look, we're in a balance right now between negatives and positives out there. We see the inversion of the yield curve. On the other hand, we see that industrial production was up yesterday. So we can go back and forth all day long on that. Today, semis are down because people are thinking that economic growth is going to be worse than expected. In the long run, because of things like infrastructure and supply (laughs) chain onshoring, I expect that economic activity for the next few years is going to be very strong, promoting good demand for semiconductors. So I look at something like today as a buying opportunity in chips.
2: Joe, there's one big tailwind out there for chips. That's obviously the Chips Act. Are you bullish on chips across the board? Are you trying to be more selective?
3: So... Adam Parker has been on the network over the last 6 weeks and Adam is is a former a semiconductor analyst and he's done a great job talking about what's happening now in the industry it's it's really coming it coming down to being an idiosyncratic single stock story right I don't think universally you could look at the entire industry and say, okay, it's got optimism or, or pessimism that's going to dictate where price is going to go. I use On Semiconductor as an example, right? Significant exposure to EVs. Just in the last couple of days, it made an all-time high. So I'm allocated towards AMD and NVIDIA. I believe they're best in breed. They're large cap companies and that they'll be able to be resilient in the environment, which Jimmy correctly defined as one that's going to be challenged But I think right now, looking at the industry, you have to be very tactical in your ownership and identify which specific companies are able to deal with the inventory missteps and be able to deal with uh, contributing in a way that's going to see near term revenue growth, which certainly is going to be challenged. It's certainly single stock Prevalence right now. Yeah, we have a lot more chip commentary coming up on the exchange later today. Our colleague
2: Christina Evelis talking to a couple of chip CEOs. So Jenny, this one, here you're not mad about this one. You were ready to jump in. So. What's your take on chips right now? Are you bullish are well, on the broader sector, or are you more selective like these other guys? More
4: selective. And I love this conversation because it feeds into the technical versus fundamental that we had before. Maybe if you were looking at chips from a purely technical perspective, you might say, hey, not for me. But if you look at them from a fundamental perspective, you can parse through. And let's take AMAT for example. So AMAT's biggest customers are Taiwan Semi, Samsung, and Intel, who still have very aggressive spending plans. Meanwhile, you've got a stock that's trading at 13 times earnings with an 8% free cash flow yield, Decent earnings growth ahead, and I'm like, that's what I want to own right now. That's very different, Joe. With all due respect, but like, I don't want to touch on or Nvidia because for me and our strategy, those multiples are just way too nosebleedy to make up for for the earnings. Now, yeah, sorry for the earnings growth. Earnings growth is still good, but trading at 50-ish times earnings, which I believe they are, that's too rich for me. So, as someone who's more value focused, I can I can parse through and I can find Amat, I can find Teradyne. You notice I'm not saying Intel although we all know I own it. So maybe I'm backing away from that a little bit although we still hold it. But I think that there's opportunity in there. And so I think that's where you wanna you really want to do your fundamental hard work analysis.
3: Yeah, Chips again having a rough day. Jenny about- have Jenny, have the team Jenny, have the team go look at on semi. It trades at okay. fifteen times.
2: Oh you I guys are gonna okay. like it. Okay.
4: Thanks.
3: I like this. I like this.
2: Just sharing his Karen. Sharing his Karen. All right. As we mentioned, (laughs) chips down today, down about 3% right now. All right, straight ahead. Mixed results from Target, Lowe's, and TJX, the retail trade. That's coming up next on halftime.
4: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away?
8: Good afternoon, everybody. Here's uh, your CNBC News update for this hour. Chinese troops will travel to Russia to take part in joint military exercises led by the host that include India, Belarus, and other countries. China's participation in the joint exercises was, quote, unrelated to the current international and regional situation, that according to China's defense ministry. The CDC outlining plans to modernize the agency. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky acknowledging shortcomings in the agency's COVID response and laying out her plans to make the agency more responsive to future health crises. Those plans include simplifying the CDC website to get rid of overlapping and contradictory public health guidance. That would be a good start. And the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's uh, Department blaming a monkey for a prank nine one one. Well, how did you know whether the monkey was pranking or not? I mean, he may have been well intentioned. Emergency dispatchers answered the call but got no response from the call. What do you expect from a monkey? Deputies were sent to the address of the call which was a local zoo, before realizing that a capuchin monkey named Root, that's R-O-U-T-E, had apparently picked up the cell phone and made the call. That one every day. Frankie. just don't get that kind of stuff on those other so-called business network.
5: (laughs) Keep that that monkey away from the stock
8: market, please. That monkey might make some money, man. (laughs) He can throw darts. (laughs) He He can just go
2: AMC, Bed Bath Beyond. There you go. There you go. Tyler Matheson, Butler, Tyler, we're taking it easy on you. No jacket. Jim doesn't have a tie on. He just caught it earlier. So you got to come with the jacket next time. Thanks, man. <laughs> wow. Tyler Matheson. All right. We got more clues about the state of the consumer today. Retail sales coming in flat last month with falling gas prices and a drop in auto sales. Meanwhile, earnings at Target taking a huge hit because of unwanted inventory. Lowe's reporting mixed results, too. Jenny, I want to come to you. That I, got to, I got to give a hat tip to Josh Brown. He's Earlier this week, he pointed out we have two different consumers based on income levels and things like that. But one thing I want to point out is that uh, retail sales was flat overall. But if you take out autos, and obviously we have a lot of issues with just auto inventory, retail sales were up actually 0.4%, almost a half a percent. What do you make of what we're hearing from the retailers and also these numbers?
4: So. When I was on a few, maybe a month ago with you, we were talking about my bullishness on the consumer. And one of the things that I said was, I'm not necessarily bullish on the consumer, but I'm bullish on the consumer relative to where the consumer discretionary share prices are, su- are suggesting the consumer is, which was decimated. And so that's actually played out well because what we've seen is the consumer has held up better than what the market was anticipating they would be at, It would the consumer would be at a month and change ago. I think it's interesting, and this is a hard thing to talk about because it's very nuanced, but if you look at... If you look at, you know, the five, five buckets of, of um, wages, right, the highest wage earners, um, the top 20% of wage earners, they make up almost 50% of consumer spending and so on and so forth. The lowest 20% of wage earners only makes up about 5% of consumer spending. So that's where... We, you know, we all know that people are hurting. Our hearts hurt for the people who are hurting, and that's very hard. But when you put on your cold-hearted you know, cold capitalist cap and look at it from an economic perspective, you see that even though there's people out there who are hurting, those who spend the most are kind of fine. So I'm unsurprised by how well the consumer is holding up okay. broadly. Jenny, I'm
2: going to test your theory a little bit because you're okay. talking about those high-end consumers. Tomorrow we have Ross reporting. That's definitely not a high-end consumer company. What are you expecting from that, and what's that going to say about those other consumers that you're talking about? Well, now that you have your, your cold-hearted capitalists hat on,
4: I'm not talking about only the high end, right? The high end that that top 20% of earners who makes up 50% of spending. Um, I'm talking about 60%. So let's take let's take the the three groups, right? That the three highest groups. That's a huge amount. That's about 85% of total spending. So that's That's most people out there, and so I think Ross, like Ross, is going to be fine. Um, I think the the people who, and I don't know how to say this without sounding really crass, right? But the people who are in that bottom 20%, and even the bottom 40%, they're probably not even shopping at Ross. They're probably not shopping at TJ Maxx. They're probably not shopping that much at Home Depot. So you know, it's hard and it and it's sad that people are affected so unequally at this point in time. But that's. That's the way it's always been. And so I think that's why when people say don't bet against the U.S. consumer, they know that the vast majority of the U.S. consumers are still in okay shape and that they love to spend. And even if they're spending and chipping away at their savings and adding up their credit card debt, which I'm not saying any of that's great. It's not. It just means that money is being transferred into the pockets of the consumer discretionary companies.
2: You mentioned Home Depot. I'm going to go to two military men. I don't know if they're cold-hearted. I'm going to go to two different military men right here. Jim Liebenthal, I'm going to start with you, Navy man, since we're getting cold-hearted and hard out here with Jenny. (laughs) Um, Home Depot reported, you you saw the report. What did that tell you about the quote-unquote state of the consumer? Well, the report from Home Depot was pretty good. OK, I mean, there's a rub against it that the number of transactions was
5: down, but the average ticket price was up and you put the two together and it was a better than expected report. Plus, most importantly, they maintained their guidance for the rest of the year when the comps are very hard. So what Home Depot is seeing is that the consumer is hanging in there. And frankly, that's consistent with what Walmart said yesterday and Target as well. Brian Cornell today said, hey, the consumer hanging in there.
4: And, and Amazon I think, a few weeks ago. What's that? And Amazon a few weeks ago. Yeah,
5: and I think this is the main point. We know the consumer has been through one heck of a storm the last few months. I mean, that was ugly in June, okay? But here's what we also know. Gasoline futures are down one-third from that June peak. They're back to where they were in February, just at the start of the Ukrainian invasion. Um, That has not fully shown up at the pump yet. Corn and wheat are back to the levels, these are the futures prices, are back to the levels they were at the beginning of the year and well off of those June highs. Airplane tickets are down. Used car prices are down. Yes, not all is well in Tahiti or Denmark or whatever the expression is. Uh, We got some rent Problems got a few other things in there, but the basic trend in inflation is coming down. That's visible from all these prices I'm talking about, and that will give the consumer leeway to spend. So when Brian Cornell says that the consumer's hanging in there, which by the way, Jamie Dimon is saying that, uh, many uh, you know, Mr. Moynihan at Bank of America, th- there is factual reason upon which that is based.
2: All right, we have to leave retail here. Uh, Degas, I know you own Home Depot as well. You're saying people need to look at it. Um, But straight ahead, Apple shares about 5% away from its all-time high with new bullish calls out on that stock. That trade's coming up next right here on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. Time now for our calls of the day. Credit Suisse out with a bullish note on, te- on the tech hardware space. The firm assuming coverage of Apple and IBM with outperformed ratings and higher price targets. Degas, I want to come over to you. I know you own Apple. Are you bullish on Apple because of the uh, hardware story or the services story? Well, Frank, I think you have to start with the
0: hardware because that's the key element of Apple's strategy the iPhone because, and also their computers, but let's look at what they did with the iPhone. It's a proprietary platform. So ultimately everything is built off that iPhone. Once you get that iPhone, it leads into the services. And Apple has over 860 million subscribers across all their platforms, Apple Pay, Apple Music, Apple TV Plus. So you start with the hardware and that gets you in the door for all the other services. So we are definitely positive on Apple and we see this as a great opportunity. If you don't own Apple, you should really look at it and do your fundamental work around it because we like this stock at these levels.
2: Joe, you do own Apple. Um, Rodriguez is talking about the platform, but these are really high end phones. Are you still in on Apple with the possibility of a recession or some type of economic downturn that we keep talking about?
3: It's perfect stock to own in an economic downturn. One seventy seven fifty seven, Frank. That's where Apple began the year trading. That's where Apple is going to trade above in the next several weeks, if not the next several days. Apple will actually be higher on the yield. It'll be higher on the year because all of the financial metrics of this company align itself with the environment in which the economic contraction that is unfolding allows for resiliency and allows for investors to be rewarded staying patient and invested in this name. It's an unbelievable company. Oh, and by the way, they're buying back their shares. Yeah, doing a lot of buybacks there. Jenny, over to
2: you. Uh, IBM, I know you own that. What's the, the thesis, if you will, when it comes to IBM? Because a lot of people are more focused on higher growth tech stocks.
4: Right, so this is actually really cheap. So the thesis here is this is a great valuation. You've got a stock that's trading at about 13 times next year's earnings, decent earnings growth, four point eight percent yield on it. And Arvind Krishna, what I've seen him do is start to really consolidate the hodgepodge that was IBM before he got there. And I think he'll continue to do that. So what you have is a company that produces a ton of cash and is is fairly valued. So it's really not like, you know, it's not some glorious story that I'm going to tell you something that I know about IBM that nobody else knows. It's just cheap it pumps out cash and it's fairly valued.
2: Yeah. Dividend, almost 5%. We're looking at Mm -hmm. it right here. All right. Stay with halftime. Mike Santoli's midday word that's coming up next in halftime. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the NYSC with his midday word. Hey, Mike.
9: Hey, Frank. So uh, this pullback, as most have been saying, happening right about when and at a spot it would be expected or an 18 percent up in two months in the S&P 500 just barely uh, touched the uh, 200-day average yesterday. So I guess the question now is what would remain just a merely routine pullback after the market got a little bit stretched in the short term? Probably another two to three percent downside from here would be uh, absolutely textbook in a lot of respects. I do think you have to keep an eye on what's happening with yields. Uh, the 10-year yield inching above 2.9%. Keep mentioning that the S&P has not been able to absorb very easily a 3% 10-year. and Now we have the two-year yield seeming like it wants to get back to its highs, for the year. Could just be bracing for what we're going to hear in the Fed minutes, which almost certainly is going to be an effort at a hawkish message. Uh, last time, the market sort of shrugged it off. It sort of said, hey, this is no news. But now we are much higher in equities. Maybe it'll be an excuse uh, or maybe the bond market is
2: just sort of anticipating uh, a little bit of a blow that, uh, that we don't get at 2 p.m. We'll see. All right. Mike Santoli's Midday Word. Thank you, Mike. Coming up, yeah. Cisco Systems report its latest earnings in just a few hours. We've got some ownership right here on the committee that trade ahead of the numbers. That's next Don't on time. Welcome back. Cisco Systems report earnings after the close today. Shares rising just about 8% in the last month, but still off 27% from recent highs. Jim and Jenny, you both own this one. Jenny?
4: So I think expectations are extremely low still, and that might work well for when they report tonight. Next year, they're expected to earn $3.53, so it's still trading at 13 times with 5% expected um, earnings growth next year and the year after that. What I'm worried about is that management might, because they're always conservative, they might be cautious tonight, and that could unnerve people a little bit. The reality is demand should be okay, enterprise spending should be okay, and they don't have much exposure to the PC space. So hoping for the best on this one enthusiastic
5: well they've had Meh. some, some
4: they, nah. <laughs> they've had some
5: supply chain issues the last few quarters. Uh, it's been long enough that they really need to have gotten these under control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the one thing I'm looking for. But otherwise, along with you, Jenny, this is kind of a steady eddy portfolio stabilizer. You don't look at this stock as something that is going to shoot the lights out and give you outstanding performance. Right. But so, it
4: should chug along.
2: So both of you unconcerned about the supply chain because one of the big headwinds or excuse me, yeah, headwinds oh. last quarter was the issues with sourcing out of China, sourcing components out of China. And that really hasn't eased that I much. I think
4: because we're both so long term focused, both as broader investors, but in this company, in this investment in particular, that the supply chain issues, they're a blip in the road of holding Cisco. You know, if you hold Cisco for three, five, ten years, that's just a blip that rationalizes and normalizes over time.
2: Jim, I mean, I heard you kind of downplay it, but I mean, it's it's really a big issue for a components maker. it,
4: it,
5: It is, but it's actually been three quarters that they've been citing supply chain issues. Now, I do believe this is a well run company. Uh, and that is enough time that they really should have worked the bugs out by this point in time. Every company in every industry over the last year and a half has had some you know, mm-hmm. segment of, of that time that it has dealt with supply chain issues. You work through it. They should have worked
2: through it by now. Mm -hmm. Well, shares down about 8% since that last report. Um, Forecast is for EPS and revenue to decline by 3% year over year. And coming up tomorrow on Squawk on the Street, CEO Chuck Robbins, he's going to appear. Interview, we're going to get all the answers to all the questions that we have. That's 9 a.m. on Squawk on the Street. Um, I think a lot of people in the tech sector in general looking forward to this. A big bellwether when it comes to tech spending. All right, final trades coming up next on time. Stay with us.
8: Are you following the halftime report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the halftime podcast now.
2: All right, Uber under pressure today. Shares down about five percent. Joe, you own it, and you're looking to protect
3: your position. I think I have to, Frank. I, I purchased Uber down at twenty eight seventy five, and at the time, I sold J P Morgan uh, to fund that purchase. So collectively selling JP Morgan and buying Uber at my high point I was up about seven and a half percent that's now getting erased uh, you've got to protect your downside don't let a winning trade lose it turn into a losing one I'll put a stop in below 30 dollars on a closing basis for Uber unwind that trade and go back into JP Morgan which will make my friend Jimmy happy all right there we go Uber <laughs> shares again down five percent all right time now for final trades Jenny over to you okay
4: If I'm going to stick with my meh feeling, then I'm going to give you a stock that you can muddle through with, which is Easterly (laughs) Properties. Um, They own government office buildings like DEA buildings, FBI buildings, a 5.6 percent yield. The share price is not going to do much for you, but you'll comfortably collect that dividend.
2: Jim?
5: Joe, you always make me happy. Uh, But my final trade today is ExxonMobil. Recent addition to the portfolio, it's about 12% off its recent high, less than 10 times earnings, 3.8% dividend yield, and I just don't see the energy market going down meaningfully from here.
3: Joe. Whether you're nervous or excited about the market, don't forget about healthcare in your portfolio. A name I own is Amgen. It's a name I like going forward. All right, Degas, you got the last word.
0: Illinois Tool Works, an industry parts maker with a 9% earnings growth and a 2.4% dividend yield.
2: All right, Degas, you weren't playing around when you said you're looking for opportunities outside of tech. That does it for Halftime, the exchange with Kelly Evans. It begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the
3: podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on
6: CNBC.